Records Australia, you're listening to Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. For a lot of people, when you think of childhood cancers, it may conjure images of toddlers and children. But as today's guest will tell you, that's not the full story. Our guest today is 16-year-old Tamlin Hall, who was diagnosed with blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm at age 13, the first person in more than 10 years to have a confirmed case in Australia. And just when you think having a rare cancer is enough, Tamlin takes us through her journey and highlights the inequities she has experienced as a teenager living with a childhood cancer. Before we go any further, we would like to provide a serious content warning. This episode explores issues relating to depression, isolation, and suicide. If any of what you listen to today is triggering or leaves you feeling like you need support, our team is here to help. You can call us on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Hello to all our listeners and thank you for joining us today on Radio Rare. I'm Dr. Emily Isham and with me today, Tamlin Hall, who is now 16, studying at TAFE for Business Marketing and Communication, but was diagnosed at 13 with blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, which is a rare cancer. And she had treatment for that and is now off treatment, but she's still trying to navigate the world of media and social media and how cancer patients and people who are involved in the cancer world are portrayed by the media. Hi Tamlin, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. So do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came into this cancer world for want of a better world word? Um, I tripped up the stairs one day and I had like this big purple lump that we called my alien because we didn't know what it was. And I split it open and it just went from there. I was originally diagnosed with, with, with lymphoma. And then the next day on the Monday, they were like, sorry, we're wrong. It's BPDCN. I was like, oh, okay. Golly. So what? tell us a little bit about what that cancer is and what happened after you were diagnosed. So typically BPDCN, it is an old man's cancer. We believe that I was the first person in 10 years or so in Australia to be diagnosed with this cancer again. We didn't know what we were doing. The oncologists didn't know what they were doing. Um, we were blind leading the blind, basically. That's what they told us. Um, by the time I was diagnosed, I had two weeks left to live because it had just grown so much. And we just attacked it with chemotherapy after chemotherapy, steroid after steroid, and it was a lot. Yeah, I had about two years worth of chemotherapy in, from February 17th to um, about July 6th. It was intense. That does, does sound really full on. Were you just in year seven or eight at that point, Tamlin? I had started year eight. So that was the first few months of year eight that you were essentially out of action for, for treatment? Yeah. Gosh, and, and do you remember much about that time? Um, I remember some parts. I... Obviously, I've my brain has chosen to remember the good parts. I remember a lot of the nurses, and the nurses are amazing. They've made me laugh. They've made me feel normal, and they've really been there. I feel like nurses, they're amazing people. I still talk to some of them today, and that's really nice. My family was there for me, which was 
really good. I'm one of four children and both my parents were there and they really supported me. When I was diagnosed though, my dad was in London and he couldn't get back straight away, which was hard. But he did his best and my family is just amazing. I just think any family is amazing who goes through cancer and it was and it brought us all closer together. And I'm really happy about that. That's incredible. Testament to your parents, perhaps, and and all of your siblings as well. Yeah. My oldest brother, he stood up and looked after the other three siblings, which I'm very proud of to call. I'm proud to call them all my siblings. And they were just incredible. I remember my twin brother, he would sit outside in the lounge room, outside my room, and he would always be there every day after school, just before he went to school, every weekend, just in case I, if I ever needed anything, he would be there straight away, which was incredible. Wow, that's that's amazing. What a bond you, you two must have. Yeah. Have you been able to talk about it with them since or is everyone pretty traumatised by that period? We've talked about it. I think we need to talk about it more, but the way we got through cancer was that we joked about it because that's the people who we are. We When we don't know what to say, we make a joke and that's how we got through it, which was, I'm just glad we got through it somehow because... Yeah, we just didn't know what was going on. It was just incredible. Like my sister would be looking after me one day and then my mum and then maybe my brother. It was just, I was just all of a sudden, I was the youngest of this big family because I'd always been like, oh, I'm I'm the youngest. Like I'm kind of left out. But I was just so grateful that I had all these people. Sounds like a really solid unit. So tell me what happened to your other communities when you were diagnosed and then you started tr- during treatment. Did you have a friendship group that stuck by you or did you have to find new communities um, within the hospital or within the cancer support system? Um, the previous year when I was in year seven, the cancer had affected me, giving me extreme anxiety and depression. Um, so I had isolated myself in my first year of high school, so I didn't have many friends. But my school still showed up when I had cancer, which was really amazing of them. I learned recently that this girl I had never met, had never heard of, had decided, hey, we should do some fundraising for her and buy her an iPad switch to show that we care and that we're there for her, which I thought was incredible. This person I'd never met, never heard of, did that for me. And it just shows how great of a school I went to. And my teachers, they visited often and they they were just incredible. They continuously emailed and checked in on us. And like I said, just incredible. Wow, that's amazing. That's not um, that's not common. So when you finished, Tamlin, when you came off treatment, I think you said, was it July? Yeah, so I had a bone marrow transplant on, in July, which the bone marrow transplant didn't go great for me because they tried putting a nasal gastric tube in three times, but the third time I threw it up with blood, which really freaked me out. Um, so then we had to figure out another way for me to get nutrition and, like, not die. <laughs> Um, so we ended up having like PPN or something, I can't remember, um, which was fine. And on the first day, they they got my medication wrong. So I ended up having blisteration all down my throat and into my stomach, which wasn't pleasant. And it wasn't, it wasn't great. It was, I was in a lot of pain. I remember having to see the pain management team because I had to have some very strong medication and it was just so hard. It was just a constant day in day out and it's just hard because I was used to seeing my siblings 
and my parents all, every day and hearing all this noise and being in a loud family where there's something always going on. But then I was in this room for like a month, for over a month, and I just had my mum and my siblings couldn't really come in and give me hugs or anything because I was in isolation and that was hard. It was hard on my mum too because she's a really maternal mum and she cared for my siblings as well, but she, she knew she had to look after me. And that was actually a really hard thing for me during cancer. I felt so guilty because here's my mum looking after me, always with me, always by my side, sleeping in my bed because I'm scared. And I'm thinking, you have four other children to parent as well and you're still here. I just felt so guilty for my siblings. They were the type of siblings to be like, we don't care as long as you survive. We don't care what has to happen. As long as you make it, Tamlin, we just want to be, we just, we just want you to be here, which blows my mind still. An incredible, incredible blonde. Um, so also in bone marrow transplant, I ended up, we just, we'd wake up, I'd have my morning medication. Um, cyclosporin is the grossest medication I have ever had. It is awful. We end up having to let my medication breathe, like just sit out of the packet for 15 minutes before I could take it because it just it had the most awful aura and taste that you couldn't take it straight away. And um, it was just awful. But every morning we'd get up, have breakfast. Mum and I would get on my bed and we would start washing NCIS. And then after 10 minutes or so, I'd fall asleep because I was exhausted. And then I'd sleep most of the day and mum would go do her thing, which was reading or doing the washing and talking about my bone marrow transplant. It's a one in four chance that your sibling can be a match. I had four siblings. One of my siblings was a match, which I find really funny. I, I just find that such a cool fact. It's like, yes, I knew we had a big family for a reason. <laughs> so what? So your sibling was the donor? Yeah. Wow, what a gift. Not my twin, funny enough, but my um, middle brother. That's incredible. Wow. So what did you do in terms of feeling so isolated during that transplant time? Did you have ways of connecting with people using technology? Well, I mainly talked to my family. We did a lot of Skype and messenger calls and we did it that way and they'll come up and sit outside the um, glass door room and they'll come talk to us. But other than that, we didn't have much conversation contact I didn't have really many any friends back then um so it was hard because I had all the people I needed I had my family and I was like that's all I need to get through life which was good but that's times it was like I wish I had someone else though but what was really hard is that you have to isolate for 100 days after you get out from a bone marrow transplant which I found that a lot harder because all of a sudden I was home and I was seeing all my siblings go out, go out with friends, go out, have a life. And I was just sitting in a room and I was, I was in the room right by the front door. And it was just, well, this is my life. I'm stuck here watching everyone else live their life. And that's how it's kind of felt for the past three years. I, cancer has given me a lot of, so having, since having cancer, I've had a lot of restrictions. Um, I remember going back to school. Um, as soon as anyone had a cold, I was the one who had to go home because they couldn't because people are silly and they send their kids to school when they're sick and I was the one who had to go home because that was the safest option for me which I found out there but that's all good um there was other things I couldn't do I couldn't 
I went swimming the other day for the first time in three years because we couldn't use a pool for ages because it was a public pool. We didn't have our own pool. Just It's like all those little things, the things you don't really think about. It's going out with your friends to a public place with more than 10 people. It's being able to go, hang on, that situation, that won't kill me because that's what my thought was. Every time I it was like, how many people are there? Are the people going to be sick? Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to risk it or am I going to stay safe? And it was hard. But, and that's when my mental health started to, to, to deteriorate because I wasn't normal anymore. I was, I was the person who saw a bruise on myself and just had a massive panic attack because I was like, is my cancer back? And I still do that three years later. I go, I see this bruise on myself and I go, my cancer's back. It's the end of my life. And it's PTSD. It really is. And a lot of people don't realize that cancer gives you PTSD, which is really unfortunate. And they don't understand cancer in general as well, which is great because you don't understand cancer truly until you've been in the cancer world, which I'm really appreciative that most people don't understand because of that. But I still think they could be educated more. So on that note, Tamlin, what, how do you think they understand cancer and why do you think people have come to understand cancer that way? I feel like there's a very, there's a glass wall in the middle of people who've had cancer and like people who are close to have people have cancer. And then there's people on the other side of the glass wall of people who have not had cancer or have not been close enough to someone to experience the world of cancer. And I feel like it is very much a glass divider. It's so much harder for teenagers, I feel, because they, because a lot of the time when you say childhood cancer, you think about the little kids. You don't realise that childhood cancer also means teenagers as well. And we're very, at least where I was in Queensland, very overlooked. We didn't have much support. There was all these people for the little kids. There were all these resources for little kids. and all the explaining about what cancer was and what bone marrow transplants was and all this stuff was for little kids. And we're like, well, we want more information so we know what we're doing, going through. And so we were left with Google and that's what terrifies us because we had access to the internet and that's what we did. And then we had to watch these little kids and it was heartbreaking and it was just hard. It It was just incredibly hard. I don't know how else to describe it. But you would hear this little kid crying and be like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And you think, oh, my gosh, if only you can make it a bit more than you have your whole life in front of you. And this would just be a, and it's just, you have to get through it. You have so much ahead of you. And then you see all these really, and you make friends with these kids. And then you watch them die. I remember going to funerals of my friends that I'd made and, that was the hardest thing. It's like these people who understood me, who understood what I was going through, these people who were there for me, who I could be like, who I could say a single word to and they would understand completely. And then all of a sudden they were gone. They weren't there. They're not, they're not there to cheer me up on my bad days anymore. They're, they're gone. And you think, how did that happen? That's not fair. That's not fair at all. These people, they've had their whole lives ahead of them. They have so much potential and they're trying so hard, but it doesn't matter how hard you try because you you could just die in the end. Like, 
it's so frustrating. Coming up after the break, Tamlin continues to share her story and talks about her personal experiences with post-treatment depression and how she found a way to keep moving forward. But first, a message from our specialist cancer navigators. Hi, my name is Beth and I'm a specialist cancer navigator with the patient support team at Rare Cancers Australia. Our team understand that everyone's journey is different. So we are here to support those affected by a rare or less common cancer diagnosis by navigating you through some of the hurdles you may be faced with. For example, we can link you in with peer support, which is linking you with other cancer patients who are going through a similar journey to yourself. We can also link you in with support groups that we have run for patients or carers. We also have the ability to link you in with clinical trials for your specific cancer type. We can link you in with specialist clinicians for your cancer type as well. So if you'd like, feel free, give us a call on 1800 257 600 or email us on support at rarecancers.org.au. Welcome back to Radio Rare. Before the break, Templin shared her treatment journey with us. She highlighted how isolation can be one of the hardest parts of living with cancer, but how a single kind act from a stranger can make all the difference. We now return to hear more about Templin's story, particularly her experience after treatment and the journey that would continue long after. A final word of warning, the second half of this episode may be triggering or confronting for some listeners. If any of what you listen to today leaves you feeling like you need support, our team can be reached on 1800 257 600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Mm, such a such an intense experience for you, Tamlin, going through all of that and dealing with the repercussions for so many years. Why do you think... Uh, TV and media and Google being left to Google, you said before. Why do you think that's a problem and potentially dangerous? Because, again, there's not a lot. When people do childhood, they think of the little kids. And then when they do adulthood, they think of the adults 18 plus. And there's not a whole lot for teenagers out there. Where, from what I experienced, we were severely missed. Like, there wasn't a whole lot out there for us. There wasn't much for us to do. Um, we're stuck at the children's hospital and it really is a kid's hospital, not a um, childhood hospital because there's all these kids' TV shows and, and all the beds are. I remember one one guy, he, he, was, he was tall and he couldn't sleep on his bed probably because it was a children's bed, not a teenage bed. Yeah, I bet. And a lot of the pictures that you see circulating in media are kids, aren't they? kids with no hair yeah because when you see a little two-year-old with no hair who has this nasal gastric tube going up their nose you think oh my gosh that poor child but you see a 13 year old or a 15 year old and you go man that sucks but like that doesn't pull my heartstrings the same way it does for a little kid yeah so true so tell me did you use much social media when you were going through treatment and um you did you use it to connect to others I did. I used it to let people know from my school, from people that 
I went to primary school with people who were my friends that I didn't that I couldn't talk to I couldn't see for more and even though they weren't people I knew extremely well they gave me a lot of support and like seeing that and being like there are people there there are people that I can rely on there are people that I can if I fall down these people will lift me back up and so I posted frequently on Instagram and seeing all their support really helped me and I was like I'm not alone I can I can do this because even if I fall someone's there to catch me that's that's a great thing to rely on isn't it did you continue with social media after treatment finished Hamlet um, I posted one last thing about how I finally finished treatment altogether and that was my last post about cancer. I know I just wanted, I had this horrible time with cancer and it was just, it felt like it was ruining my life and I just, I wanted to be done with it. I never wanted to talk about it again. And every time it feels like I'm just done with it, like a new problem ar- arises. It was, okay, I'm done with cancer treatment. I can go back to life. But there was like, no, you have repercussions from your cancer treatment. You you have to you have to see an endocrinologist, you have to go see a cardiologist, you have to go see a psychiatrist, you have to go see a psychologist, you have to go see a dietitian, and you have to see your oncologist regularly. It was just it was hard. You you said you use social media to connect to people. Did you encounter any things that you thought were bad about social media while you were dealing with cancer? No one would tell me the truth. Um, people were like, oh, she's the darn girl. We can't upset her. I don't want to be mean to her. Um, I, there was a lot of fake people. I found that there are a lot of fake people because they want to be the person who's nice to the girl with cancer, but because they don't want to be seen as the mean person. And I came back to school and I found out there were a lot of fake people. They just want to keep you happy, especially while you're on treatment because it's a oh, we want to make their life as happy as possible because they might die. But we want the truth as well. We want to know what's going on. We want to know, especially as you get older and as you're an older person who has cancer, you want to be included because you know what's going on in the world. You know what's happening and you want to be in charge of that because it is yourself. It is your body. That makes sense. You, you, you know, you, you're not a child anymore and so you understand a lot more. So, of course, you want to be included in, the, in that decision-making and have some kind of control over your life. Um, and, yeah, I remember one day I was like, look, Mum, I, I don't want to do this anymore. It was true. I was, when I first started treatment, I couldn't lie down. Uh, I had too much chest pain. I couldn't sleep properly during the night. I would be awake till 6 eight. I'd wake up at 12 o'clock in the morning. And then I'd go to bed at six o'clock in the morning when the sun started to rise because my system was just so messed up. And I just, one day I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I, as soon as my mum, and my mum did the hardest thing ever a parent has to do is say, okay, this is, it is your life. And as soon as she gave me that permission to control part of my life, I, I started to fight more. I started to fight harder. Because I was no longer fighting out of obligation, I felt. I felt like I was fighting for me and I was, yeah, I wasn't forced to do it. I finally had this, you can do it or you cannot do it. And I decided to do it. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation that you've made from your own experience of this, obviously. So has it 
have you found it a smooth transition into kind of that the last few years of life after treatment or has that because a lot of people find that a really tricky transition yeah like all of a sudden you're surrounded by nurses and doctors who know what to do when something goes wrong you're surrounded by your family who comfort you and give you hugs and then I like I said I went straight back to school and I was all of a sudden this environment I was like wait what there's no one here my mum isn't here to hold my hand with me while I re-enter this world there's, there's not a nurse around the corner that I can just ask for help. It was all of a sudden I'm very by myself, but that was that was my choice. And what what I found hard as well is that cancer also it really affects your brain and your mind. It was very very hard for me because I couldn't remember anything. I had severe memory problems. I had severe concentration problems. I was extremely tired all the time because I just had cancer treatment. I just finished fighting for my life. I remember I studied and I studied and I knew all this material, but then I failed. I have never failed in my life except that one exam. And it was maths. I'm really good at maths. I just remember failing and it was just, it broke my heart. I was like, I'm a failure. But the truth was, I'm not a failure. I just have difficulties. I have disabilities now. I have to have special consideration and I have to have things done for me, not because I'm a failure. But because something happened to me, something so severe, I'm like, oh, yeah, I had two years worth of chemotherapy and then I had six rounds of radiation. For me, that's just the fact. That's just what happened. And that's all I know because I didn't really get to interact with a lot of other cancer patients and see what their treatment was because I was always sleeping or throwing up or being sick or something. And so to me, that's just the normal. And I forget that it's not normal. And I just, I started comparing myself saying, well, you just had this, so why can't you be like everyone else? They're going back. They're everyone else. You just had like a year off. You were just sick for a little bit when actually it was a lot bigger than that, but I didn't register that for some reason, and I still find it extremely hard to register that within my brain to think, to say, no, 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 you went through this major thing, and I'm like, oh, but like, because so I went back to school and no one knew what to say, so they didn't say anything, so it wasn't talked about. So I was just like, oh. It is not, it's not a major thing. It's just something that happened. So Tamlin, tell me, what have you found that's been the most useful in the last few years, particularly knowing that people are much more connected online that they used, than they used to be, other than, of course, the, the essential support that you've had from your immediate family just around you. What have you found that's been the most helpful and what do you wish you'd been warned about, about online stuff? I found other people who had had cancer extremely helpful because they understand and they they become your family. Instantaneously, as soon as you enter the cancer world, it feels like um, you're, you're just part of this family. You've all of a sudden come in this family because of this horrible reason, but a lot of these people are really incredible and that's how my mum has found her best friend to this day. So what do you wish you'd been warned about then on the flip side? There are quite a few things. Um, I did watch a few cancer movies and TV shows when I, before I had cancer because I was a teenager and I was watching all these new teenage movies and stuff. One thing that I didn't realise was that a majority, in all of the movies that I have seen and all the TV shows, they all get skinny and thin and frail. I didn't realise that. I was going to gain 40 plus kilos. 
I was extremely shocked. And that's one of the biggest struggles for me. And it has been for the past three years. I didn't realize that you gained weight from cancer. I always just automatically assumed that you lost weight and then you became thin and frail. That was just yeah, steroids do that, don't they? Yeah. Steroids do that. But no one ever explained mm. that to me. No one ever said, hey, look, you don't get thin and frail. Some people do, some people don't. And when you're on steroids, you just especially gain weight. And it was just, wow. It was like, this is eye-opening. It was like, but it was not what I expected. You know, and not everyone gets extreme nausea. That was another thing. I was expecting you to throw up every day. But they have good medication out there and they really help you and they really try. And I know I was on this, like, a constant um, anti-nausea um, medication constantly every something hours every time on that hour every hour and it was great so I didn't really throw up all that much incredibly encouraging isn't it when you see people come through that uh, cancer treatment so Tamlin you too have um, done some pretty extraordinary things over the last few, few years so just in terms of getting back to your life um, that, that you had before cancer and trying to speak out about certain things like um, the misperceptions that are put out by the media and things like that. Tell us what you're up to now, what you're just about to start or you've started studying and um, where you want to go. I had a really hard time for a while. I came back to school. I saw all these incredible, amazing doctors and nurses and I was like, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to help people. And the only way I thought I could help people was to be in medicine. And I was not good at academia. I still not really am. And so I just hit this bump and I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I don't like this. How else am I going to help people? And so I started doing fundraisers and helping people that way. And I was like, I love making other people smile. Even if they don't know it's me who made them smile, I just love seeing people smile and making them smile and think, I'm responsible for that person smiling today. That might be the only smile they get this today. And that's, that really touches my heart. So I was like, well, how can I do this for the rest of my life? And I Googled charities. I was like, okay, well, I need to be part of a charity then. I want to be the one who raises awareness. I want to be the one who talks to people and be like, you can do it. Who goes, this is true. This is what happens. And you can get through it. Mm, sounds like you're... An incredible woman, Tamlin, and you've got some wonderful things ahead of you. And it's pretty impressive that you've got to this point with so much insight. And it's hard to remember that you're only 16, especially after all the cancer treatment that you've had. A lot of people do see that side and they think I'm the most incredible person. But what they don't know is that I cried almost every single day. I probably cried multiple times a day. I was just constantly upset. I was like, I've missed out on this. I didn't get to do this. This I'll never be able to do that. And that's still a thing for me. Like, um, look, this time last year, I was in hospital. I was in the mental health unit because I was I had suicidal tendencies, which, yeah, like after fighting for your life and you, you don't realise that it was like a year later ago, actually, this is way too hard. This I don't want to live. I I feel like fighting cancer can be the easy part, but the really hard part can be going back to normal life. Everyone else is normal, but not your normal. Because you've just gotten used to this normal of this normal cancer world. 
and then all of a sudden you finish and you're shoved back into society's normal and you're like what's going on what's 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 happening and I felt that a lot I felt very isolated I felt very alone and I missed out on a lot of opportunities to the point where I did try to kill myself in July and but since then I have gained friends and they have helped me see the right thing but it's I don't think there's a single person out there who's constantly happy. There's no two people have the same story, but but every one thing every story does have in common is that it's hard. It is challenging. And that's the one thing we all have in common. And I just, I guess I never thought that I'd fight for my life so hard. And then two years later, I'd be trying to end it. And one major thing that people keep saying to me that I extremely hate, and I want people to stop saying all together is, at least you're alive at least you're alive and it's like yeah I'm alive but at what cost uh, I know that's not the positive vibe everyone wants but it's yes I'm alive but I've lost a lot too it's good to be honest that is a line that we've encountered a lot that people hate in the rare cancers community Tamlin so thank you for highlighting that and thank you for being so honest and uh, thank you for telling us about you know, what you found difficult and, and the amazing support your family's given you sounds like they're an incredibly incredible family and um, a community that you really, really needed. It just shows how important community is, doesn't it? I often uh, finish up these interviews by asking the person who I'm interviewing what they if they have a favourite book or a podcast or music they like to listen to. So do you have one of those that you'd like to share? I do. I'm currently obsessed with a podcast called Crime Junkies. Um, (laughs) It's about missing people and murder and it's not a great one that we should be advertising because some people don't like that. But I find it very interesting. But um, my favourite book series is The Vampire Academy, is Vampire Academy. I feel like the name doesn't represent it as well as it is. It's this most incredible story about these two best friends and I just, it's one book that I always go back to. It's the book I know off by heart. It's the book that when I open it, it feels like I'm home again. It just no matter where I am, even if I'm in the middle of nowhere in the most uncomfortable situation, I can open up this book and I go, I'm home, I'm safe. And it's just an inspiring story, I feel. Yeah, it sounds like some, someone, everyone needs a book like that by the sounds of it. That's, um, that's really like a yeah. comfort blanket, hey? Yeah. yeah. After everything you've been through, it sounds like the perfect thing to accompany you through the difficult patches of life. Well, Tamlin, thank you so much for putting this time aside and chatting to us today. It's uh, It's been really, really helpful for us to hear about what you've what you've been through, what you found difficult, what you found really helpful and where you're at now. And we just want to encourage you in your study next year and... Um, Hope that you really find your niche and use those skills that you have developed and strengthened over the years. Thank you for giving me this opportunity because this is one thing that I've been wanting to do for ages and talk about, but I've only been ranting about it to my family and they're pretty sick of it. <laughs> oh, no, any time. It's been a real pleasure to listen to your side of the story and, and give you a voice. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. 
that brings us to the end of the episode. We want to thank Tamlin for her time and energy today. We understand that reliving difficult experiences can be uncomfortable, confronting, and even exhausting. We thank Tamlin for sharing so much of herself and her journey. The candid nature of Tamlin's story highlights exactly how important Radio Rare is to ensure that people in the rare cancer community have a platform to share their stories and experiences, no matter how challenging. Every person is different, every cancer is unique, and each journey is personal. And we are grateful to all of those who choose to share their experiences so that others can feel like they are not alone. That's all from us today. We thank you for joining us. Bye for now. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr. Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Narrative writing and mixing of today's show by Alexander Smith. Reporting by Dr. Emily Isham. We are edited by Nikki Beltran and myself. And our episode music is from Audioblocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website and you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Simply search Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening and we'll be back shortly with our next episode.